Hey guys, just before we start, I'd like to thank our new patrons from the month of March. So thank you, Amber. Thanks, Jules, for upping your pledge. Welcome, John. And as well as some people who dropped some change in the tip jar. So thank you, Lindsay, Meredith, and Carrie. You guys are so supportive of the cult, and I appreciate you guys so much, especially in this weird COVID-19 time zone we're living in. And now on to the episode. Welcome back, Devotees Collective. I keep forgetting how I intro this. And I'm over 100 episodes, so I should know this. <laughs> I have a very specific one that is like the same two lines. And then I like pretty quickly dive into like the guests because I'm like, the less I talk, the better. <laughs> and this week we're here with Allison from Not Your Little Lady podcast. <laughs> I'm going to have double accents. Last time it was Scottish. This time we've got a Southern accent. It's all the fun. And I'll turn it up if you want. <laughs> Oh, you can turn it up as much as you want. <laughs> oh, also, too, I'll be saying Spanish words, so it's going to be, like, even more exciting <laughs> to see how those come out. <laughs> We're both drinking sake. I'm not sure how I like mine. I love it. It's my drink. <laughs> it's your drink. I bought mine on accident. <laughs> Thought it was peach wine. Mm. And did you know that there's such thing as a sake sommelier? That sounds fancy. Mm-hmm. It's like you do what people do for wine for sake. It costs like $1,400 to take one of the courses. I thought about it. That's a lot. Like, is it multiple tests or like as soon as you're done, you're done? Like you're, they give you a stamp. Here you go. The thing I looked at, it had like two classes and then like one really big like class test thing. So it is more than that, but I think it'd be cool. And I think there's a market for it. Nobody sells sake. I think you do sake pop-ups. Nobody Ooh. steal my idea. <laughs> <laughs> We're trademarking it. We put the digital trademark. So should we should we go on to our story? Because yeah. we're going to travel outside of the U.S. We are. We're going further south than the south. <laughs> the, the deepest of the deep souths. <laughs> yes, but not to South America, only to, I think, it's still, oh wait, it's, we're still in North America. Yeah, yeah, it's the end of North America. Yeah, the first second I was like, is it Central America? And I was like, no, that's not Central America because part of what I'm going to be talking about is in NAFTA. So uh, that's why I was like, oh, it's North America because <laughs> <laughs> I talked about NAFTA in this. Yeah, so before we even get started, I am definitely 100% not an expert on this and I don't think you expected me to be, so that's good. <laughs> nope, this is an intro level for introduction for everybody on this topic. I think, unfortunately, I might not have it as an intro. I might know something about this. Oh, for real? My knowledge base is very scattered and very random. I might. I can't promise anything. That's cool. Well, if you do, you should totally chime in. What I decided that I wanted to talk about was the Zapatista movement in Mexico. And I picked it because a couple, I guess it was like the first year that I did my podcast. Um, I was looking for a Who's That Lady from History, which is a segment that we do where I highlight somebody or a woman from history that people may not know about. So yeah, I was looking up somebody and this is for an episode that we were going to be doing on around Cinco de Mayo. And like I was like, what is the history of Cinco de Mayo? And so that's what the podcast episode was about. So the, and, and it was about tequila too, because tequila is another one of my loves. I love the clear liquor. <laughs> <laughs> sake and tequila <laughs> also gin but um i don't i don't really like vodka vodka can it's not my favorite anyways um <laughs> so 
the lady that I looked up, her name was Comandante Ramona, and she was one of seven commanders in the Ejercito Zapatista de Liberación Nacional. And I picked her for the lady from history because I'm 5'2". She was like around 5'2". And she was like this little petite lady who's like a commander in what is considered a guerrilla group in Mexico. And I was like, that's badass. I want to like highlight her and talk about her. That's how I found out about the Zapatista movement. And it sounds like I'm doing it on Comandante Ramona, but I'm not. So now <laughs> we're going to switch to the history of the Zapatista movement. It was formed in um, 1983 in the state of Chiapas. And that is the state that is the furthest south in Mexico. It has the largest population of indigenous people in Mexico. And while it is rich in natural resources, it's one of the poorest in the country. Sounds about right. Yeah, it's really, um, I think in many cultures and many countries, it really seems to be that the indigenous people have the best land and then people come in and take it from them. And therefore it leads to a bunch of, you know, bad things down the line for the indigenous people. That's America. <laughs> it also seems like the resource curse, because if they're resource rich, it's this is normally in Central South America and Africa. You have the resources, and then someone comes in and goes, hey, how about we uh, pay you for those? Way undervalued. Yeah. Destroys well, the area. and There's a place in Oklahoma, and this is off topic, but there's a place in Oklahoma that used to be like Native American land and or um, indigenous people land. And um, they, the U.S. government wanted to mine it for, I think, I think it was oil. No, it was a uh, gun, like the stuff that's used, metal that's used to make like bullets and stuff. I forget what that's okay. called. I should know what that's called. But anyways, it was used to make that. And like basically they stripped the land down and made it like unlivable. And it's like in a really bad state. It's a, um, it's a super fun site at this point. But I digress. So Yeah, we'll that's always fun too. They're, you're just like, well. We borrowed this. We brought, gave it back in the worst condition. Feel free to try to live on it. And then yeah. we're not going to give you any help. Okay, bye. Yeah. So that's basically what the um, colonialists, the colonizers did in Mexico. And so due to the repercussions of colonialism in Mexico, um, the people in Chiapas have faced a lot of issues, including malnutrition, illiteracy, and maternal mortality. Also, on top of that, unequal land distribution and the government's apathy towards solving the problems in the area had led the or led the indigenous people to form the Ejercito Zapatista de Liberación Nacional and begin an army fighting against those who oppressed them, a.k.a. the Mexican government and colonizers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the movement formed and uh, the movement officially formed in November 1983 and was named after Emiliano Zapata. Zapata? an early 20th century revolutionary. His rally cry was Tierra y Libertad, so it makes sense that the movement would carry his name since a lot of what they fought for was land rights and, you know, freedom from the government. <laughs> yeah, land issues are really big in Central and South America, really the Latin world, because colonialism and machismo, all the good stuff. Yay, colonialism. I don't mean that. I don't like it. It's, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> that would be a great t-shirt. Yay. Colonialism. And then just a frowny face. <laughs> I don't mean it. <laughs> On the back it just says, I don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, it would be dangerous for someone like me to <laughs> since I'm very white. And <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Just be like, oh. We're not dangerous. It would be inappropriate is what it would be. Like, <laughs> forget dangerous. Inappropriate. Um, okay. 
But yeah, so uh, economic reforms along with indigenous people dying from preventable diseases were some of the reasons the Zapatistas went full force with a rebellion against the government. And the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was a free trade pact between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, was especially concerning for them. The most worrisome part to them was a land reform bill that would privatize the country's communal farms. And just generally overall, the Zapatistas believed NAFTA would only further exacerbate the poverty within the indigenous community. And they actually called it a death sentence for indigenous peasants of Mexico, which makes They're sense. They're not wrong. Yeah. It's, taking it's a, proven that fact. Yeah, it's taking away their land and then also to, like, I don't know, free trade is is a very interesting topic to discuss. I talked with um, my ex about it a couple months ago, and it was interesting. It's, it's, a, it's like, a hard thing to, to think about, you know, because there's so many, like, things that are good. Like, there's good things, but there's bad things, and it's, like, which one overwhelms the other one, and how do you deal with that as, like, a country or as a person? I got off on <laughs> You also have to think like the they have lived like this for so long and it's worked for them for so long. Mm-hmm. You're gonna go take away their communal land. You're gonna take away a lot of aspects of their life. Oh yeah, taking away the land, absolutely. That's bad. Like mm-hmm. that should have that should not even have been like proposed in the bill that was added on to this. So yeah, you know, just tack some little extra stuff, hide it underneath there. Yeah. But um, so their distaste and the distaste that they had for NAFTA is definitely valid. But with that in mind, they planned their uprising for the day NAFTA would go into effect, which was January 1st, 1994. And um, the leader at that time was Subcomandante Marcos. And the ELZ and army was made of almost all indigenous people and was about and about one third were women, which is exciting because I don't think women are really included in a lot of these like uprisings or they're like told to stay home with the babies. But in this movement, they were made like they were put into the forefront and like asked to join and asked to be like an active part of it, which is one reason I got so excited about researching this. <laughs> That's what I love about like Latin American, like really the indigenous culture. They're very it seems like especially you look at the disappeared in Central and South America, a lot of these movements are led by women and they're fighting by, fought by women. Indigenous cultures just, I feel like, valued mm-hmm. women more. They understood it was a balance rather than one versus the other. Yeah. And to have that power recognized, I feel like we're, I feel like this, the United States is like just coming into their own, like, like, I feel like they're just coming to their own as far as like recognizing the power that women have and accepting that women are powerful and can be in charge and should be involved in all of these things. And it's exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on New Year's Day, the Zapatistas made movements, made moves to and then did occupy seven towns in the eastern part of Chiapas. One of those towns was San Cristobal de las Casas, and it was a popular tourist destination. So as usual, like I feel like as usual, tourists, they weren't kind to the indigenous people and they stigmatized them and oppressed them. So what? imagine that. They probably <laughs> came in on their cruise ships and were like, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean I can't take pictures with you? Isn't that why you're here? <laughs> Let's not lie. Yeah. We all know those people. Mm, I just died a little on the inside. <laughs> but um, while they were occupying the colonial city they read their declaration of war from the balcony of the municipal palace 
And in this location, just as the Mexican military was arriving, the Zapatistas slipped away. But in other towns, the rebels battled Mexican troops and many people were killed in the battles. I think that was smart. Like, it's smart that they, like, in the main city where there's a lot of tourists, you kind of just slip away. Because you want to make sure you keep that the hearts and the minds kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And in other cities, you're trying to win over the populace and you're like, okay, let's let's fight for our rights. You don't want to harm the tourist industry because then you're going to lose a little money you do have coming in. Well, and too, it can make them more into like, I feel like if you if you harm tourists, like people are going to tend to try to make you into the bad guy or bad, bad people, not guy. But bad yeah, people. especially American tourists, we tend to vilify anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, stop being a dumb tourist and don't go to these places when you know that like things are like, you know, bad or like that people are being mistreated. Just like, don't support. I mean, support them, but don't support. I don't know. Support them through ethical ways. Yes. Yes. That's what support them ethically. Oh, yeah. So this specific uprising lasted only two weeks, but it would have an impact from that point forward. In the years that followed, other states such as Guerrero, Veracruz, Puebla, and Oaxaca do did the same. I really I had to look up Oaxaca because it's not spelled how I thought it was said. <laughs> I am trying to learn Spanish. It's one of my goals for the year, but I don't know it yet. So practice makes perfect. Exactly, and this, this is a decent amount of practice for me. <laughs> um, so many, many many municipalities that supported the Zapatistas declared themselves autonomous from the state and federal government governments. Additionally, this uprising made the ELZN a social movement recognized on the world stage and inspired solidarity in Mexico. And in 1994, peace talks were initiated by Mexico's president, Carlos Salinas de Gortari, but it went nowhere. A new president, Ernesto Zedillo, took office and launched a military offensive against the ELZN. An arrest warrant was issued for members of the Zapatistas, including Marcos. All of these actions were unpopular decisions, and soon after Zedillo began negotiations with the ELZN. In February of 1996, the San Andreas Accord was signed. It consisted of indigenous autonomy, cultural rights, and land reform, but the agreement didn't last long. Zidia rejected the accord in December 1996, and after this, the government did some real shady stuff and armed paramilitary forces, which attacked civilians. In one attack, they murdered 45 people, and most of those people that were murdered were women and children. So... Not great. Real shady stuff. Mexico government. Um, But yeah, since then, the movement has shifted away from armed combat. Now they are more focused on peaceful action, and they formed local-level administrative structures and local government seats. So I think maybe moving away from the government or working, trying to, like, work with the government sounds like it was the best thing for them and their cause because it's not like the government was just giving them a runaround and then, like, murdering a bunch of people. When did they switch to working with the government? Um, well, in 1994, that's when they started peace talks with one of the presidents, but they didn't go anywhere. And then they they continued to try to talk to them through, um, like, 1996, and I think a little bit later from, from then. So, from what I remember about learning stuff in, on Mexican history is, and I've double-checked this unofficially through Wikipedia, the same party, basically, from 1934 until 2000... Mm-hmm. ran mexico so uh, it's interesting to see like they probably and it was very much you know eurocentric looking mexican presidents it's the um yeah 
I think even the last, or not their current one, but uh, yeah, Vincente Fox in 2000 is when he took office. <laughs> That's yeah. what it says in my notes down here. He was the first non, um, he was part of the National Action Party. He was the first non-president uh, who wasn't from the party of the Mexican Revolution. Ah, okay. So he was the first one, and it was like a peaceful change because there had been a lot of corruption and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it makes a lot of sense yeah. that that would be when it, they started picking up traction. Yeah, so rewinding a little bit from um, <laughs> Vincent Day Fox, but uh, in 1999, they the ELZN organized the National Consultation of Indigenous Rights and Culture, and they traveled throughout Mexico to have political discussions to gain knowledge on the national thoughts on Indigenous peoples' rights. And they surveyed around 3 million people and ended up that they people supported the San Andreas Accords. So yeah. In 2000, as you mentioned, a new president, Vincente Fox, took office, and the Zapatistas asked that his administration implement the accords. However, they were met with a a revised version in 2001 of the accords that they did not accept. After this, they moved away from engaging with the government any further and decided to focus on indigenous autonomy within its own territory. And throughout this time, the ELZN continued to initiate political demonstrations and programs. There was a 15-day march in 2001, which was known as the Zapator. Tensions, I don't know if it's Zapator or Zapator. (laughs) Zapator? Because it's spelled Z-A-P-A-T-O-U-R, which sounds like it's like they just put Zapa with tour, and they're like going on a tour around the... Okay, cool. Zapator. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably means the same thing. <laughs> you just add an ending to things in Spanish. You chop a little bit off, you put a little ending on. It works. I know how to pronounce a little bit because I minored in Italian in college. So it's like almost the same with like a few differences. And the differences really throw me off sometimes. But this yep. I was like, I think it's Zapatoa. Anyways, <laughs> the tensions with the Zapatistas and the Mexican government continued at that time, and they still continue to this day. So the current Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is interested in reestablishing a relationship of trust with the Zapatistas. However, because of past transgressions and an ideological divide, it will be difficult. The Zapatistas believe that in a neoliberal society, the capitalist class will always be in control no matter what party is in control of the government. And isn't that the truth? Especially (laughs) for, like modern mexico it i I think it feels very much that way Mm -hmm. from what i've seen it gets very testy because you have the cartels you have people traveling through and it's very much feels like if you're on the ground it's hard to get away from it yeah oh and i mean like even here like with i don't know when you're um when this is airing but like even here with uh like like bernie and elizabeth trying to get elected you know like I feel like because we do live in a capitalist society or like a neoliberal society with capitalism being like the main thing, like that's why the Democratic Party is pushing so hard for like Bernie to not get the nomination because it's like he doesn't like capitalism or he's not into mm-hmm. capitalism. Elizabeth Warren is. She likes capitalism. That's fine. She likes controlled capitalism, it seems like. Yeah. And so like I do feel like that. I mean, that sentence in a different way, I feel like does apply to us here in the States as well. It's like, er, and it depends on your political views too. So (laughs) whatever those are. Yeah. It's hard because you have the, you have these people who are working so hard for so little Mm -hmm. and they're, it's hard for them to change because you have on top of the government people in power, 
you have cartels, you have corruption Mm -hmm. so rampant in certain areas that if you try to change something, you get disappeared and you end up dead. Yeah. They have like yeah. Anyway, so um, (laughs) (laughs) I went really dark. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. So I sometimes get like consumed by the darkness for a second when I start thinking about it too hard, and then I'm like, get get away from it, get away from it. Um. So yeah, their movement, as I feel like we've been discussing here, um, in the last minute or so, the movement encourages alternatives to capitalism. And for the Zapatistas, their strength lies in um, their cooperatives, which strengthen the local and regional economy based on collective effort instead of profit and competition. Which, wouldn't that be such a utopia to live in? (laughs) Where you focus on you and the people around you, and you and the people around you are what's important to you, and, like, helping everyone, like, everyone helps everyone survive, and everybody helps everyone, like, have enough money to live. Like, that would be amazing. Like... (laughs) Or even if it was a balance between the two, like you don't have to go all the way one way, the other way. And it seems like they're trying to do that, but it's really hard with their current system. What I'm trying to say is maybe I'm a light socialist. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. I did a whole episode on democratic socialism. I think that's probably what I identify as. And now I can say it because I'm not a journalist. Yay. <laughs> so they've actually, um, their movement has inspired many other movements around the world, including the Occupy movement here in the States. So yeah, that's, that's the history. But I also want to kind of to, wanted to kind of zoom in and like focus a little bit for a second, a little more on the work that they've done as far as elevating women and fighting the patriarchy in their communities. Okay. Because I think that's really important. Like, Again, like with Comandante Ramona, that's one reason I feel kind of drawn to this topic is because it does, they do celebrate women and they do give them a place in society that I don't think a lot of societies give women. Especially because Latin America is known for the machismo culture because they inherited it from Spain. Exactly. Which as we're recording this, uh, I believe State Department just issued a warning if you're going to study abroad or go to Spain, you have to watch out for sexual assaults. So, yay, machismo. I mean, do we have a, is something issued for being a woman in the United States right now? <laughs> um, I don't think they do that. But... <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I know they don't do that. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably, I don't know how, if it's better or worse here, to be honest. I know. <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> this is going to be an uplifting episode for you. <laughs> Most of mine end up dark. I mean, my my episode's going to be real dark, so let's just keep on being dark. Oh, no, this actually gets a little lighter. So here we <laughs> go. Talking about how they're being great towards women. Even from the start of the movement, women were involved and they helped shape it into what it became or what it was and what it has become and is still becoming. But previous to the formation of the ELZN, women within the indigenous communities faced violence and discrimination. So they faced violence and discrimination. And once the ELZN began, women were guerrilla insurgents, political leaders, healers, educators, particip- and they participated in economic cooperatives. So the ELZN was a very positive thing for women. And because of this and the roles that they were invited in to have, gender roles were challenged in the area. And through the movement, women also became more present in community affairs. And most importantly, the movement helped give them authority in choosing how many children to have and with who. Because previous to this, they were, um, some women were having like 
10 to like 14 kids. And if that's your choice, amazing. If that's not your choice, that sucks. But yeah, so some women were, um, had like 10 to 14 kids. And like, if that's your choice, that's amazing. And like, if you want to do that, good. But I feel like maybe that's not most women's choice. So that was one of the things that they, um, that was better is that they got to choose who they had kids with and how many kids they had. Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's got to be really hard if you're having that many kids. You probably don't have access to like birth control. Mm hmm. Or even if you do, like, you probably, I know, I think in some areas of the world, you still have to have a man come in with you or you're like, you have a note from your husband or something like that, your father. And I'm like, no woman wants to go in there with your dad. Barely want to go in there with your mom if you have to. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, and you're pregnant all the time too. If you have 14 kids, like you're going to be pregnant for like probably like at least from t- for 10 years of your life, I feel like, or like 20 years of your life, I feel like you're going to be pregnant over half that time. Well, because so the natural birth cycle, if you don't have birth control and you're breastfeeding, it's every two years. You get pregnant every two years. <laughs> it's it's a fun fact that's in my mind that oh, I know this. Oh, man. I'm so, I'm so glad that the Zapatistas exist for these women um, or that they are able to be involved. Because you have 10 kids, that's, yeah, 20 years, you're pregnant 20 years and probably starting at like 14. So (laughs) 14 to 34, you're constantly either having a baby or like there's 20 babies around you. Oh, I'm stressed out. (laughs) Just thinking about that. Everything hurts. My whole body hurts just thinking about that. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, another thing that they did um, is they led the push for and achieved the cause of the Zapatista territories becoming alcohol-free, which resulted in a high or it resulted in a really big reduction of violence towards women, um, which is great. Again, that's normally like the push. The reason why women are very active in like movements against alcohol is because this is just the tendency of men to go get drunk mm-hmm. and then beat their wives. Yeah. That's why we got prohibition. It's it's been seen all across the globe is women really push that movement because they're on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. When your husband goes to the bar after work, has a couple of drinks, get mad about something and your his meal's not ready. So he slaps you around. Yeah. But yeah, so they did they were able to get the get alcohol banned and it's working out really good for everybody, I think, at this point. Um and then so in nineteen ninety-three and after the alcohol being banned, in nineteen ninety-three the women's revolutionary law was passed by the Zapatista government. Um, I get from right, I guess. Yeah. Anyways, um, in 1993, the Women's Revolutionary Law was passed, and the law guaranteed the right to public and political participation, to a life of free, to a life free from violence, um, the right to choose your own romantic partner, the right to decide the number of children to have, and the right to education and health care. And that was like one of their really big achievements. And when I looked up stuff about uh, Commandante Ramona, that was one of the things that she was one of the champions for. So that just like having a law passed that like states those rights instead of just having it be something that's in the air, just words that people have said is, I think, monumental. For it's crazy because I don't even think we have right to health care in this country. Mm-mm. So we're all just sitting here 
And the rest of the Western world looks at us like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. This is a universal right that you don't have to, like, die. Well, and I believe for things. even Commandante Ramona, I think she died. Because um, I know she died from, she had cancer and she died from hmm. cancer. And one of her big pushes the whole time she was in, like, doing stuff with the Zabatistas was to get more rural health care. And yeah, she died in 2006. And so even if, even since this stuff has passed, that they do have a right to health care. Mm-hmm. Commandante Ramona died in 2006 and she died on the way to the hospital because there wasn't a hospital to serve her out in Chapas where she lived. So she died on the way to the hospital. So she, they still haven't achieved all the stuff that they want to achieve. Is a work in progress. I feel like all kinds of things that are good and just are always a work in progress, especially right now. Um, it takes time. History is a line. Yeah. It's yeah. not a circle. It's just a line. We're moving linear, 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 linearly. No. Linear. Okay. It shows a, we're, we're moving, moving down a, a straight line. We're moving down a straight line. It's not going up. It's not progress. It's not nothing. We're just moving a straight line. Things are getting better, but we're not doing that. We have to do it ourselves. Yeah. Otherwise, no one else will do it for us. Yeah. But since that time, the Zapatista women have moved their conversation or the conversation that they've been having beyond their own communities. And in 2018, they created an international gathering for women who struggle to encourage an anti-patriarchal platform. And most recently, in late December 2019, the women of the Zapatista movement held the second international meeting of women who fight. And they had more than 3000 attendees from all over the world. And they, like, had, like, workshops on stuff. And then they, like, spent the night in tents. And um, the workshop or the whole meeting was meant to give attendees tools, ideas, and inspiration for the fights that they face in their lives every day. That's really impressive to think of. They started off so small just in this one region, but they're impacting globally, especially if people can afford to travel like there. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, the AP article that I got that from said people came from um, Siberia and I think Algeria. I know one of the countries was in Africa and the other one is um, Siberia. That's not a country. That's Russia. Russia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's still pretty impressive. So they're coming from Africa and mm-hmm. like probably Eastern Russia. So yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they did. The people came to participate from all around the world. Um, but yeah, so I think I really enjoyed learning about them. I did like a really white girl thing while I was researching them and just drank white or drank red wine and listened to Selena the whole time I was doing the research and it was amazing and I had a great night. <laughs> I love Selena and she's great. So um, I really, I, I enjoyed getting to learn more about them and actually kind of diving into it because I did know a little bit because of Commandante Ramona, but I didn't know a whole lot. I think it's interesting, too, that because of how the government is down there, the people who participate or the, the Zapatistas, they keep their faces covered because mm-hmm. they can't and they don't use last names because they don't want to be identified because it's too dangerous to be identified. So that's I mean, they're putting their lives on the line just to make a world better for themselves and for other people, too. That's crazy. To, and to think they have that big of an impact where they're it's not just in this small portion of Mexico, they couldn't be silenced and they're known internationally mm-hmm. because everyone always thinks, oh, I can't do anything. These people are literally 
having their lives threatened and they're still going out there and doing it. So mm-hmm. it's very inspirational. Just so I give credit where credit is due. I want to tell you about the articles that I got this information from. So some of these, I got this, I got the information for this. Um, I don't know what to call it from the information. I, the stuff that I just told you, I got it the all episode? from like, yeah, yeah. I got this information <laughs> for the um, episode from a bunch of different sources. I kind of just smashed them all together because I feel like that gave a more holistic view of what the Zapatistas are. So one of the articles was by the AP, and it was called Mexico's Zapatistas Host Women Who Fight Gathering, and it's by Isabel Mateos. And then I also found one on Bitch Media by Victoria Law, and um, she was highlighting the book that journalist Hilary Klein wrote. And that book is called Compañeras Zapatistas Women's Stories. And then I also got some information from the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I also got more from the School for Chapas and then um, the North American, the North American Congress on Latin America did an article as well. And that article is, is by, oh, Hillary Klein, the same person who did the book. Cool. I didn't realize that until just now. And it's called <laughs> A Spark of Hope, The Ongoing Lessons of the Zapatista Revolution, 25 years on. And then I got some information from an article by... I don't see the... Oh, by John Vidal, who writes for The Guardian. And those are the people who helped me do this episode for you all. And if you enjoyed it and learned stuff about um, Mexico and the Zapatista movement. Allison, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you outside of this episode? Yeah, so my podcast is probably the thing that I'm most active on on anything. Um, but my podcast is Not Your Little Lady, and you can find episodes of that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a special shout out to Castbox because they're awesome. And I got I'm featured on their indie picks, and that's Ooh. really been good for the podcast. And then also to Stitcher, all the general podcast apps, and if you want to follow me on social media. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Not Your Little Lady. And then on Twitter, it's Ladies of NYLL. And as a side note, I'm also a photographer and I have a photography page on Instagram. And it's just my name, Allison Carter Photo. And you can follow that too. I take some cool pictures sometimes. A lot of time. My pictures are really cool. (laughs) They are really cool. (laughs) So we'll be back next week. And I'm going to tell you, it's not a good story. It's not good. Uh (laughs) Dark, dark story. Uh (laughs) So we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Hey there, it's Allison Carter. I'm the host of the podcast, Not Your Little Lady. Each episode features a woman living in the South outside of socially accepted norms. Listen and relate as these women share stories about obstacles they've faced and how it feels to come out on the other side. We talk about things that pissed us off, the booze we like to drink, and historical women who have made a difference. Through all this, we explore the importance of women owning their past, present, and future while keeping it light and funny. You can find episodes, which are released every other Wednesday, on most podcast listening apps or at notyourlittlelady.com. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at ladiesofnyll and on Facebook and Instagram at notyourlittlelady. Happy listening, y'all! Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast a podcast where I like to talk about all things strange and unusual, whether it's mysteries, historical crimes, or fairy tale origins. I hope you'll come along for the ride and join me as we delve into some spooky tales. 
Happy listening. To Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.